Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am your special, temporary, primary host of the show. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. We have a lot of great stuff to cover in the episode today, but before we get into that, uh, you might find yourself in a position where you feel like you enjoy the podcast and you feel like you want to uh, act upon that enjoyment uh, by supporting us. And there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You could join our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. Uh, You could check out our coaches at Stronger by Science. We have a really excellent, experienced team of coaches who do one-on-one virtual coaching for training and for sports nutrition. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. Gets you a 5% discount off of your entire order. Uh, You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which is a monthly research review where we cover the newest science in uh, training and nutrition. And of course, you could check out Macro Factor. That is the diet app that we put together with a talented team of developers. And it does have a free trial, so you can take it for a spin and see if you like it. Uh, Greg, how is the road to the stage going? Uh, road to the stage is is going pretty well. Uh, I hit a new low of 226.6 this past week. So I am officially down 40 pounds since I started using Macro Factor. And I am in total two-thirds of the way to my goal uh, from my previous high weight of uh, 278 point something. Trying to get down to sub 200, uh, so I'm two-thirds of the way there. Which is, uh, you know, that's that's a nice little nice little mile post. Um, but uh, yeah, so looking forward, I'm in kind of a weird spot because like objectively speaking like diet fatigue is low like i feel i feel good uh it's not hard to hit my targets uh but i also just for for reasons i can't fully discern am feeling waning motivation don't know why that is um but yeah so i i I don't know what the next few weeks will look like may take a little break may keep going but uh yeah, for now, it's it's nice to hit that little milestone. You know a good way to kind of give yourself a little jolt of motivation? Uh, ask myself, how would I approach this situation if everyone who I loved would die if I didn't meet my goal? That is a good way to do it. Um, and a pretty realistic way to frame it, too. <laughs> but I was thinking, I would just pick a show date. <laughs> You know, just circle it on the calendar, find the show, order some trunks. Let's make this thing happen. Uh, All right. Road to Athens here. Um, No major updates. Um, I've been super, super busy uh, doing a lot of writing lately. And so I've been using the gym as kind of a a little break to kind of clear my head and move around a little bit, use up some energy uh, it's basically like I work out when I have writer's block. I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, screw this. I got to move and get some blood flowing. Maybe I'll have some uh, ideas floating around in my bloodstream. And if I increase cardiac output, they'll float to my brain. That mm-hmm. That's kind of my my thinking there. But the other day, like I've been doing a lot of basketball. I mentioned previously, for whatever reason, when I play basketball, um, the 
running posture, like the uh, the mechanics of running while playing basketball do not exacerbate any of my hip issues the way that kind of standard endurance running does. Uh, and posturally, it's quite different. You know, when you're dribbling a basketball, uh, it looks very different from when you're just like coasting through like a 11 mile run, you know? Yeah. So basketball has been a great outlet for me to get some cardio in when I don't feel like swimming. Um, and man, the other day I was just, uh, just kind of beating the hell out of myself to, to just burn off some energy. So I would just go full court. Uh, there's no one around. So I was just going layups back and forth and back and forth and back and forth full court, uh, mm -hmm. trying to really keep the pace up. And man, I just, I kind of forgot how hard basketball is when you're playing within that context of like full court up and back minimal rest. Yeah. And like, it really makes you like right now the NBA playoffs are on. Mm -hmm. You develop a completely different appreciation for watching the game when you remember what it feels like to try to do a skilled action or activity when you're fatigued as hell. Mm -hmm. So like I would, you know, go do back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, and then pull up for a jumper. The task of trying to focus on executing a skilled action like that mm -hmm. when you are absolutely gassed. It, it just gives you a completely different perspective. I, I think for some people who don't have a lot of experience playing basketball, you watch the NBA and you say, yeah, like if I were 6'11 and my job were to shoot all day, you know, in practice, like if I was shooting around, you know, 14 hours a week or whatever, I'm sure I'd be pretty good at basketball. You know, I think it's because NBA players are such outliers physically in, in most cases. I think sometimes there's a tendency to kind of not fully appreciate the challenges and demands of basketball. Yeah. But yeah. man, just go run some full court back and forth six, eight, ten times, and then try to hit jumpers. Uh, yeah, it's it restores your appreciation for the absolute unicorns that play NBA basketball. So here's a here here's a recommendation to you or anyone else listening to this right now. Um, this is how I got really good at free throws because I'm very good at free throws. Uh, so in middle school, uh, we would do this drill at the end of practice where everyone on the team would just line up around the free throw line and um, like, you know, everyone would shoot two. And basically like, you know, middle schoolers aren't particularly good shooters. And if you can hit like 70% of your free throws in seventh grade, like that's, that's pretty good. Uh, and so basically the coach would just have like, that number where, you know, if, if we were shooting, uh, it was more than this, but just to make the math easy, uh, if we were shooting collectively 20 free throws, then if we uh, made at least 14, we didn't have to run. But for every free throw under 14 that was made, uh, we had to run a suicide, like free throw line back, half court back, other free throw line back, full court back. Um, and so like during the off season, I was like, hey, you know, that's that seems like a good drill, like improve my free throw shooting, get in better shape. And so I would do that with myself uh, where I would just shoot free throws and instead of running a full suicide. Like I would shoot 10 and for every free throw I missed, I would run it down and back and just repeat the process. And it works really well, both for getting just better at free throw shooting because you're shooting a ton of free throws uh, for shooting free throws well under fatigue. Um, because you are running a fair number of down and backs. And then also just for conditioning. Cause like what, what you were mentioning, like it's 
far harder to shoot when you're fatigued. Um, like once I got quite good at shooting free throws, basically the way it would go is for the first five rounds. You know, I'm making 10 of 10, I'm making 9 of 10, things are going well. But once I maybe had 10 or 12 down and backs on my legs, then it would drop to like maybe 9 of 10, 8 of 10. And then once I started making like 7 of 10 or fewer, then the wheels would just fall off. And I'm just running enough that like just percentages drop uh, horrifically. And like if I can make 40, 50%, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, so if, if you do that for like an hour, it's an hour, like but certainly by the end, you will have done a ton of conditioning and it just gets harder and harder over time. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how I got good at shooting free throws. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that'll do it for sure. And it's, it's way more engaging than just like running on a treadmill for an hour. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So feats of strength, what do you got for us this week? Yeah. So I've, I've got, uh, I think we both have non-traditional feats of strength. So mine, um, is for a strength sport that I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast, but I think it's very cool, and that is arm wrestling. And um, so John Brzezink is possibly, I can't even say possibly, John John Brzezink is the greatest arm wrestler of all time. Like that's, I, I don't think you would find hardly any dissenters amongst that. Um, he, I think, won his first world championship in 1982 at, at the age of 18 and was basically like the top heavyweight arm wrestler until like around 2010 give or take like he he basically had a 30-year span of dominance in the sport and when I say heavyweight like he mostly competed at body weights between like 200 and like 225 sometimes up to 240 um but he was he was kind of like Ed Cohn there for a while, where Cohn competing as a 220 would oftentimes beat the super heavyweights as well. Uh, John Brzezink at a body weight at around 200, 220 uh, would sometimes just compete against the super heavyweight arm wrestlers who were huge and would beat most of them <laughs> like during during that 30 year reign of terror. And um, but yeah, so just a tremendous career, great longevity. Uh, and he was, he was at the top or basically at the top that entire time. But then he starts getting into his mid to late forties. Uh, his results start dropping off a little bit and like, you know, he's, he's getting older. Like, of, of course they're going to. And, uh, by the time he turned 50, like his performance had, had dropped enough and he was starting to accumulate some injuries that he was like, you know what? It's been a good career. It's time to hang it up. Uh, so he did. He retired, I, I think, at 50 or 51 after after a career that no no one would be able to find flaws in. Like, just, no, th there was nothing left to prove. There was no reason he would need to ever compete again. Uh, and I'm sure you see where this is going. Uh, he made a return to competitive arm wrestling earlier this year um, <laughs> after seven years in retirement at the ripe young age of 57 years old. And uh, he is once again, and I, I don't follow arm wrestling close enough to have like a super strong take about this, but you could make the argument that he is once again the best heavyweight in the world. And 
if you would not sign off on that, he's certainly in the conversation. Um, so he's he's not at a point anymore where he can beat the top, top super heavyweights. Uh, but against guys who are like 225, uh, yeah, he, he looks like easily one of the top five guys in the world again, uh, which is is absolutely bizarre because like even when you think about uh athletes with with great longevity um you know you you think about people who are still able to compete at a high level in their late 30s maybe into their early 40s you don't think about people who retire in their 50s stay retired for seven years and then come back and aren't just competitive but are once again among the best in the world uh, so it is truly remarkable what he has already accomplished. And it is, I would say, maybe even more remarkable what he is uh, accomplishing in this moment and moving forward. Um, just just a tremendous athlete who uh, who deserves more respect. Um, I mean, he, he has all the respect in the world within the arm wrestling community. But, you know, that's that's not a sport that people follow. Like, it's not a sport that a ton of people follow. Uh, and even myself, as someone who's only like uh, roughly follows it a little bit, I didn't find out he was back until he'd been competing for a couple months again already. Um, but yeah, so if you if you don't follow arm wrestling, John Brzezink is still someone you should be aware of. Uh, j- just because, like, if you want to talk about people just across any competitive sport ever who have had the greatest careers, he would have to be in that conversation. Like his. His dominance of the sport for so long, incredible. And the fact that he's able to come back and, and keep doing that at 57 uh, just just boggles the imagination. Yeah, I can only think of one kind of analogous situation where somebody is at the top of a sport, retires at, at a you know kind of an older age relative to the sport, and then comes back and is quite competitive. And I'm thinking of George Foreman. Uh, yeah. in boxing like he, he's one of the only analogous situations i can think of but we have an opportunity to see this once again because as we know uh tom brady had a lengthy retirement from professional <laughs> football but he has returned yeah. so it'll be interesting to see what what he um looks like after about 13 days of retirement it's going to be exciting yeah you you could also throw satchel page in there mm, like but, I, I don't yeah. think he i don't think he came back and like pitched full seasons but he would occasionally come in for like an exhibition game, I think into his sixties and uh, still, still pitched at a high level. Yeah. He he would have been just fine in this era. Cause like <laughs> starters only throw like 50 pitches and they're like, all right, get him out of there. Oh, yeah, he, he would have been a usable bullpen arm until like 75. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day that was lamenting. Like you just, with the way that pitching has evolved, you just do not see a lot of complete games anymore. Uh, you know, a starter back in the day, like I remember as a kid, you'd go to the ballpark and you'd see like Greg Maddox is on the hill, right? So yeah. you're like, oh man, that'd be incredible. You know, if we see him doing, uh, you know, if he goes like eight, nine innings, like you would expect that, you know, in the seventh inning, he's going to be on the hill. Well, and it would be good because it would be a short game. Yeah. Greg Maddox was famous for, for pitching a complete game that would go like two and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's just totally different now. Um, Dude, earlier this year, uh, Clayton Kershaw had a perfect game going, I think through seven and they pulled him. Yeah. Which like, he did. Yeah. 
maybe theoretically that's like the right call for you know preserving an older arm like you, you don't want to accumulate too much fatigue early early in the season but but brother if you got a perfect game going through seven like yeah. you got the purest in me says you gotta at least let him try yeah i shouldn't go out on this limb because i'm not certain if it's true but I, you know the justification for pulling him was like hey it's a long season we want to keep him off the injured list keep him in the rotation i believe he ended up getting pulled from the rotation recently anyway mm. uh to, to try to manage his load so yeah. like the idea was like hey we don't want to be in a position where we have to take him out of the rotation I think they did anyway, nah, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, so then after that, people looked back in hindsight and the people who were already annoyed that he got pulled, they're like, well, he ended up on the injured list anyway. So yeah. like, you know, good load management. <laughs> uh, but that might not be true. So I should probably stop discussing it at this point. I think I heard that, but I don't follow baseball very much. Uh, but you know what I do follow? I I've got another feat of strength here that, you know, you mentioned it's, Really exciting to see kind of singular instances of feats of strength, but longevity is important as well. Mm -hmm. You know, putting together a career uh, of impressive feats. Big Don Gorski. Uh, Big Don is a nickname I gave him. But Don Gorski, uh, he just reached a milestone. He has been eating Big Macs approximately every single day for now 50 years i believe that in the last 50 years he has only missed a handful of days and it's been things like uh, i believe it was like the day his mother died uh a day where he, he lives up north uh, i think in wisconsin mm -hmm. and so like a mcdonald's just didn't open because like it was snowed in and like no one could get to work yeah and i even read that nowadays he buys extra big macs and has them in the freezer just to make sure something like that never happens again so over the last 50 years, he has totaled over 32,000 Big Macs, uh, which is it blows the, the previous record out of the water by a mile. He documents everything. He keeps receipts. He even keeps boxes, the little cardboard box that the, the Big Mac comes in. Uh, so like this guy has the receipts. He's got the proof. Um, and I think it's safe to say it's a record that no one will ever touch. Uh, but he was also ahead of the curve when it comes to the, like, if it fits your macros, like, oh, I'm going to eat you know, Twinkies every day and, and prove to everyone that it's okay. Uh, you know, by every indication, it looks like he's still in pretty good health. Uh, every now and then he'll go, like, get his cholesterol checked. It's always within normal ranges. So uh, he's been working on that if it fits your macros anecdotal experiment for for 50 years now and doing pretty good. Not not a recommendation. I wouldn't necessarily say you should eat uh, one or two Big Macs a day. But uh, anyway, congrats to Big Don on passing 50 years. Dude, this guy was in. Uh, he was in Super Size Me, wasn't he? Yeah, he's 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 made a bit of a a bit of a cultural impact. He's been on quite a few things. Yeah, I I just searched him and I I re I remember seeing him from Super Size Me and he. He just seemed like a, a very affable, like hippie type guy with the like round John Lennon style glasses, but yeah. with transition lenses, just absolute king shit. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, man. It's incredible. All right. So moving on, we've got some segments prepared for today, getting into uh, some science. I know our last uh, episode was very anecdote heavy. The pendulum is swinging back. We're talking, uh, we're talking science today. So I wanted to have a very brief research review about sedentary time. 
um, just because I've been digging into some of this literature. And this kind of builds upon uh, some of your previous segments about walking, you know, because uh, a lot of times we think about sedentary time and we think about, okay, uh, it seems to have an independent deleterious impact on health and wellness. How might we rectify that? And one kind of proxy measurement you can use is daily step count, which which you've kind of addressed. Generally speaking, if you have uh, a pretty high step count, it's unlikely that you have a tremendous amount of total cumulative sedentary time because you're out there walking a lot. It also it, it at least pl- places an upward constraint on how much sedentary exactly, time yeah. you can have. Yeah, yeah. it's a proxy. It, yeah, it's yeah. not a perfect indicator, but generally speaking, if you have a high step count, that is likely to at least correlate with having relatively lower total sedentary time and theoretically relatively fewer very prolonged stretches of continuous sedentary time. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, if you have a pretty high step count, it means you're getting up, you're moving, you're walking, and generally speaking, having less total sedentary time and hopefully less continuous sedentary time as well. Um, So just to kind of build upon that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the independent ramifications of sedentary time and a couple other strategies that you could use outside of just monitoring step count. Because I know for some people, monitoring step count, you know, there are some people that really like to have a very quantitative approach to their health and wellness. They like to track everything. They like everything to be numerical uh, and they can, you know, do different types of interventions to influence those numbers. Uh, But I wanted to talk about a couple other potential strategies. So first of all, it's important to establish that, you know, you established very effectively in previous episodes that low step count uh, seems to be associated with some deleterious outcomes related to health. Um, there are other meta-analyses that have looked not just at step count as a proxy, but specifically looking at different forms of sedentary activity and how those relate to health and wellness. So, For example, uh, there was a meta-analysis by Patterson and colleagues, and I'm going to link all three of these in the show notes. Uh, But Patterson and colleagues found that total sitting time and television viewing time were associated with higher risks of several different chronic disease outcomes, and that was despite controlling for physical activity. So we're talking about the independent impact of sedentary time that you can't necessarily offset by saying, hey, I, you know, I go for a jog three days a week. Like there is, uh, it's difficult to defend the case that regular participation in structured exercise completely nullifies the deleterious independent impact of being sedentary for large portions of the day, uh, especially for extended discrete periods of time. So Patterson and colleagues found this despite controlling for physical activity. Uh, Biswas and colleagues found significant associations between sedentary, uh, sedentary time and risk of a variety of negative health outcomes related to mortality and chronic disease incidents. Um, and this negative impact from excessive sedentary time, it was certainly more pronounced among people who had low physical activity levels, but the association still persisted after controlling for physical activity in the entire sample. Uh, and then finally, Eklund and colleagues found that sedentary time was significantly associated with mortality risk in individuals with low activity levels, low physical activity levels. Um, and it was interesting because they did some stratification by physical activity level, 
And, you know, like I said, the, the, uh, the association with negative health outcomes uh, was, or, or mortality risk, I should say, was significant in the lowest uh, third of physical activity levels. But if you look at the high activity, moderate activity, low activity kind of subgroups, within each of them, you could see the same pattern where regardless of where you fall, like having high activity level certainly attenuated, you know, especially like for this is relevant to people who do structured exercise, it seems to attenuate the magnitude of the deleterious outcome from sedentary time. But the general relations relationship still persists. What I, and what I mean by that is when you look at the low, medium or high activity groups, Within those groups, you can see that relationship where the higher your sedentary time gets, uh, the more likely that, that you're going to see an elevated risk of all-cause mortality. Uh, so this is, uh, collectively, the, the literature indicates that, you know, certainly it's good to do structured exercise and to have, you know, a really intentional focus on getting out and doing discrete bouts of physical activity, uh, but there's still an independent negative impact of really excessive sedentary time. And we, we see these kinds of things in, in uh, studies with athletes, right? Even competitive athletes, you can look at some, some research where within a cohort of competitive, highly, you know, you know really well-trained athletes, there are still associations between sedentary time and outcomes related to body composition, for instance. I know mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Helms, the other Eric, uh, reviewed a paper in Mass uh, a year or two ago looking at the fact that uh, among really well-trained athletes, higher sedentary time was associated with lower relative fat-free mass and higher relative fat mass. Mm -hmm. So this stuff persists even among people who have uh, a really high level of engagement and structured exercise. So what do we do about that? I, I think that there are two goals that you want to have in terms of uh, offsetting some of these potentially deleterious impacts of sedentary time. The first would be just reducing the total cumulative sedentary time you have throughout the week. Uh, the second goal, I think, is beyond that effect, if you can break up long extended periods of uninterrupted sedentary time, there is some research to indicate that that might be particularly beneficial. Um, so, you know, I, I know there are intervention studies where they will look at some of the acute cardiometabolic impacts of an exercise bout, and they'll find that those acute uh, benefits of structured exercise can be really dramatically attenuated by just doing like four days of increased sedentary time, you know, so we want to make sure that, you know, and, and the way that they do that is with long uninterrupted blocks of sedentary time. So, mm -hmm. um, I think a strategy for reducing total cumulative sedentary time throughout the week is very simple. It's just planning out activities that might not be structured exercise, but they are non-sedentary activities. So we can generally define sedentary behaviors as behaviors that are performed in a seated, reclined, or lying position with a MET value uh, less than or equal to 1.5. And MET is an acronym that is short. It's not really an acronym, but they always capitalize it. Uh, but it's short for metabolic equivalent. Yeah. Um, and we had an interesting conversation off air about how metabolic equivalents were determined. It's not the most robust science. Um, it's basically like back in the day when research was very hard to do, 
They measured one dude who was 40 years old and about 70 kilograms. And they're like, how much oxygen does this guy consume if we just sit him down in a chair and measure it? Uh, turns out 3.5 milliliters of oxygen uh, per, uh, what, per kilogram of body mass per minute. Yeah. I think that's how yeah. it goes. Uh, and so, yeah, from there, the MET was born. The, the MET is a standardized amount of oxygen consumption per kilogram of body mass per minute. Uh, and so you can debate, you know, how well that transfers to different populations. You can and you should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I say you can debate. There are many papers explaining exactly why that number doesn't transfer to a variety of populations. Um, but it kind of doesn't matter that much. If you're just using it as a broad, uh, a broad metric for identifying different general activity levels, it still has utility within that context. I would not use it for individualized calculations of energy cost yeah. of, of a specific exercise bout. Uh, there are better ways to do that, which I might get into at a later date. Uh, but if you're just trying to say, hey, I need to break up my sedentary time, the way that you would do that is look at a list of different types of exercise or just general physical activities and say, hey, I want to find stuff that's at least higher than 1.5 METs. And if you get over, if you get into the range of like two to 2.9 METs, that would generally be considered light or low intensity physical activity. So that kind of sets a general range for, for where you would be finding some degree of activity that is beyond rest, but not necessarily structured exercise. And you might be saying, well, Eric, there's so many potential activities that one could do. Where would I find such a list? And there's actually a tremendous list that is publicly available. Um, it's uh, There's a 2011 Compendium of Physical Activities by Ainsworth and colleagues. And it's openly accessible. You can download it. And I think it has 821 different physical activities at different intensities as well. Uh, so you can go into that and, and find a lot of stuff. I mean, mowing the lawn... Uh, you know, uh, sweeping your house, mopping the floor, uh, all sorts of stuff, uh, standing, sitting, walking at a variety of different speeds, uh, shoveling snow. I mean, it, it, there are just so many different, uh, types of exercise or types of physical activity listed here and they're categorized into groups. So there's like bicycling, conditioning exercises, dancing, fishing and hunting, home activities, home repair, inactivity or quiet kind of resting behaviors, lawn and garden, miscellaneous, playing music, occupational tasks, running, self-care, um, yeah, like self-care, you know, like bathing, um, taking medication, uh, hairstyling, like so many different things in here, even uh, religious activities. If you joined me on the, uh, the road to enlightenment, I'm sorry to say that meditation, only a met value of one. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah, so a shortcut to enlightenment, enlightenment, but not a shortcut to shredded. Uh, you might, but there are some physical or uh, some some religious activities. They got um, what do they have here? Uh, there was one that was like four point five. Uh, wait, yeah, they they put moderate, moderate to heavy effort of manual labor under religious activities. Um, I'm I'm not sure how. That would all kind of work in there, but uh, yeah, maybe if, there's if, a way. If you were like building houses with like a religious charity organization yeah, or something. They do have volunteer activities as well in here. Whoa, um, that's 
that's quite the category. Yeah, how, yeah. How do they assign a met value to that? Uh, they they have a bunch of different, you know. Oh, okay, uh, okay. Standing light moderate work, standing moderate lifting. I, I thought you were saying that just like an exercise they had was just no, volunteer. No. Any, anything you're doing that is not compensated is this number of Mets. Yeah, I, I thought that's what you, what no, you were saying. No, like, it's, it's a whole category. That's wild. It's a whole category okay. where they talk about like, you know, playing with with like chasing after kids that you're you know volunteering with like a youth group or something the one i was looking for uh praise with dance or run is a religious activity with five mets whoa that's the high met value i was searching for there um but yeah so basically the 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 short version of this is for uh, just an enormous range of outcomes you can find met values uh, and kind of engage in those activities to schedule into your week certain different discrete things you want to do to uh, to break up your sedentary time and to have some non-sedentary activ- activities. So this isn't the type of thing that you would do every hour on the hour, but you could say, you know what, on Saturday, I think I'm going to go mow the lawn. It has to be done anyway, and I can you know get some activity there. Sunday, I'll do some house chores. You can find in here dishwashing, mopping, sweeping, Uh, But you can start to move some of these things throughout your week so that you break up sedentary time and maybe have one physical activity per day or two physical activities per day that are, you know, non-sedentary, but also not structured exercise. But I should mention, this list also has a lot of, of, of utility if you're looking to plan out different forms of structured cardio as well. So for bicycling, for example, um, they have all different intensity levels uh, for walking. They have all different intensity levels for different speeds of walking, uh, different grades of walking, walking forwards versus backwards. Like this is a truly comprehensive and really impressive list of activities. So even if you don't care about this podcast segment, but you exercise and you want to have a general idea of comparing intensity levels, uh, that is linked in the show notes and it's really, really useful. Uh, another potential strategy, which is, uh, I think especially helpful for breaking up, uh, long periods of sedentary activity, uh, is using something called exercise snacks. And this is something that's gotten, it's picking up some momentum in the, the peer reviewed literature, but it's basically these really short isolated bouts of vigorous exercise that are performed for very short periods of time, but done periodically throughout the day. So, uh, for example, you might do three 20 second intervals of vigorous stair climbing. Like literally what this looks like is you're at your desk job in the office, step away from the desk. Uh, instead of walking to the water cooler, you go to the stairwell, 20 seconds hard, catch your breath, 20 seconds hard, catch your breath, 20 seconds hard, catch your breath. Boom. You're done for the hour. And so like you'll, you'll find different approaches to this uh, concept of exercise snacks, but generally speaking, it's, you know, you might do something really short every hour on the hour, um, but of course you can adapt that, do it every other hour. There are also some that are a little bit longer that, that are kind of closer to like five minutes, but you would do them maybe every three to four hours. But the general idea is scheduling in planned regular breaks you know, the, the previous list of activities was more oriented toward, I'm going to do something that has a, a different purpose, but I'm getting physical activity as I'm doing it, right? Yeah. I'm mowing the lawn because my grass is long, but it's nice to know that I'm breaking up my sedentary time. But for this, it is exercise for the purpose of exercise. And it's done on a more regular schedule and done several times throughout the day. And so what they try to do with this approach 
is do uh, interventions with a lot of ecological validity and a lot of practical utility. So they try to do things like stair walking, brisk walking, air squats, uh, sit to stand, like basically chair squats, uh, body weight calisthenics. The idea is that you could, in a, a, a wide range of occupations, take a second, go do this for three, four minutes, get back to your chair and not be disruptive and not have to like drive to the gym, change clothes, take a shower, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So this is an area of research that is just getting rolling, but uh, these are some nice strategies. If you're someone who was uh, really interested by Greg's previous segments about walking, but you don't necessarily do that well psychologically with uh, highly uh, quantitative approaches to exercise, if you'd prefer to... Or if you just don't have time to get in that many steps. True. It's like the, yeah. it is time consuming. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. you know, I, the, the time consuming component is big. But I've also seen instances in the physique athlete world where people will tend to take things to extremes. You know, psychologically, it is an extreme endeavor. And sometimes people respond really unfavorably when you say, hey, try to walk 15,000 steps per day. And it's like they are so fixated on that number all day. It's it's really uh, detrimental to quality of life for some people. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways to break up your sedentary activity. And there's ample evidence to suggest that it can be a really positive thing to do so. So I've, I've actually got an anecdote related to exercise snacks. Cool. So back in the day, uh, I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. I read a book uh, many of you have probably heard of called The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. And uh, do, do not count this as a recommendation to read that book. There's <laughs> uh, some good practical advice mixed with some uh, not-so-good advice. Uh, not the best signal-to-noise ratio you'll come across. Uh, but one of the things he recommended uh, for, I think, com completely incorrect reasons did has actually turned out to be relatively helpful for me. Um, so he had this whole section about just like, hey, how, how can you use the magic of nutrient repartitioning to ensure that you can eat a bunch of food and and not gain any fat and he was like well so look uh yeah you have these these glucose transporters and muscles and if you just do 40 body weight squats before a meal that's going to cause a ton of non-insulin mediated glute 4 translocation all of those carbs you take in they're just gonna they're just gonna go straight to your muscles there's no way they could possibly meet any other metabolic fate so boom You've hacked your metabolism, uh, and all it takes is forty body weight squats. Wow! And uh, so, yeah, that's <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, when I first encountered that information, I was uh, much dumber and more naive, and I was like, oh, "Okay, okay, I'll I'll give this a shot." Um, and so I didn't I didn't uh, uh, notice physical effects that comported with what I was told to expect in the book. But uh, what I did find is just that doing some bodyweight squats from time to time did just help me feel mentally sharper and, and kind of feel better. Um, so I've actually developed a bit of a habit where, like not every time, but most of the time when I use the bathroom, I just do like 20 bodyweight squats before I leave. While you're using... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, so it's 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 good for practicing your aim. There's a, 
you know, it makes a day-to-day activity kind of like a mini game yeah. that, that you might play in like a Mario party or something. But no, uh, no, and afterwards. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, like I, I find that, um, you know, it, it just helps get the blood flowing. I find that I have more, like I feel more energetic and just have more mental clarity after that. Um, and yeah, it, it's very simple. So that's... Uh, something at least anecdotally that has that has been helpful for me good stuff um now let's shift to some really important topics here some hard-hitting science about well i'll just let you introduce it all right so uh i've already made my juvenile joke for the day yeah so first first before i get into this segment i just need to let you know that this is one for the boys so any women listening to this you need to you need to turn it off right now or just or just uh, look at the timestamp, skip ahead to the next segment. Uh, this is not for you, mostly because we, as the, as the lads, don't want you learning our secrets to, uh, you know, figure out how, how to get you in bed. So, again, this, this is one for the fellas. Uh, any women still listening, uh, j- just skip ahead. So, all right. All right, all right, lads. Now that I know you're the only one still listening, uh, th- this podcast is finally taking the turn all of you have been wanting this whole time. You're thinking, hey, evidence-based fitness information, that's fine. Evidence-based nutrition information, cool, I guess. But ultimately, I want evidence-based information on getting laid. Uh, so, you know, we're we're finally taking that turn. This is... Uh, science-based uh, 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 mating strategy advice. <laughs> no, so uh, th- that is actually what I'm talking about. And uh, I'm, I'm doing this because there is a new study that's been published that, I, that I've seen um, being shared by three distinct but also interlapping groups of people. And that is uh, fitness professionals, masculinity influencers, and incels. Uh, way more overlap than, uh, than than one would hope. And I will say these these three groups of people are, uh, by and large, taking somewhat different things away from this study. Uh, but I, I've seen enough fitness people share this, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. This is this is worth talking about. So the actual study, uh, unsurprisingly, isn't being shared around that much, but a press release, I guess, or like an article about this study, I have seen um, getting shared around quite a bit. And the press release or, or article is from RealClearScience.com. Sounds sounds very good, very credible. Um, and the title of the article is "The Male Trait That Best Predicts Men's Mating Success." So you know that's. That's quite the headline. Uh, if you're a male and you want to be more successful mating, you know, that, that might entice you to click uh, and maybe share it. And when you get into this article, um, I'll, I'll, I'll just read a bit of this. And, uh, you know, you can just think to yourself, what, what is the vibe that I'm getting from this article about this paper? All right, so it starts. In a massive meta-analysis that was years in the making, psychologists from the University of Durham and the University of St. Andrews in the United Kingdom explored how six masculine traits, a deep voice, height, testosterone levels, facial masculinity, finger-digit ratio, and strength-slash-muscularity, 
impacted men's mating and reproductive success. One trait was the clear winner. So, okay, we're one paragraph in, uh, you know, it, it's saying massive meta-analysis, years in the making, like really hyping this up, and one trait is the clear winner. So that that's leaving you with the implication that this is uh, something you can really take to the bank, and also that that one particular thing uh, is is having a far larger magnitude of an effect than anything else. All right, so moving on, the analysis, which combined 96 studies looking at 177,000 subjects from around the world uh, across a wide variety of cultures, was published in February to the journal eLife. Uh, and that's another thing worth noting. I did not see anyone talking about this study when it was published in February. Now that this article is published, seeing way more people talking about it. So once again, this this is kind of science by article, not uh, not people really digging into the full text. Um, let's see, lead author Dr. Linda Lidbor, whose academic focus is on the traits that influence human mating decisions, and her colleagues found that men who were more muscular and physically stronger reported having more sexual partners. They also fathered more children. Height, testosterone levels, and a deeper voice predicted mating success to a lesser degree, but none of these traits were linked to having more kids. Masculine facial features, like a squared jaw and a prominent chin, were not associated with increased mating or reproductive success, nor was a masculine finger-digit ratio, in which the index finger is relatively shorter than the fourth digit or the ring finger. Researchers say the results support the theory that, as humans evolved, males competed with each other for females' attention, and that women usually chose, or were forced, that's, that's quite the parenthetical, uh, to mate with the winners. And then here's a quote uh, from the authors, in species with male, or from the paper, in species with male intrasexual competition, males tend to evolve to become larger, stronger, and more formidable than females, as they are in humans. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the basic vibe. And then the last paragraph does note that some of the uh, predictors were rather weak uh, and that, you know, they don't fully explain uh, human reproductive choices, but maybe only like 80, 90 percent. Yeah, they don't put numbers on anything. Uh, they basically just say, hey, here are these things. There are some associations and of them, uh, uh, body masculinity is far and away the strongest predictor. So you read that and you you would have every reason to assume that like, Ah, whatever. They they didn't actually put any numbers in this study, but it at least has to be a pretty meaningful predictor for this article to exist as it does. And therefore, you know, people are sharing it around. Fitnessy people saying like, "Hey guys, like this is this is why you need to come train with me. Like it's it's really gonna help help your mating success." Uh, masculinity influencers saying, uh, "Well, incels saying what you would expect them to say." Like this is why you should take the bl the black pill. Like it's, it's over for us who don't have masculine facial features and are just not naturally big and strong. And then like masculinity influencers basically splitting the difference <laughs> where it's just like, yeah, th this is why you should get big and strong. And also why, why it's, you're fucking done for if you don't, whatever. So, uh, you know, all, all of that is well and good. Uh, this is the article being shared. Those are the takes I'm seeing from it. But, man, it, sh it sure would be inconvenient if you could actually pull up the paper and uh, look at the strength of some of these associations. Uh, and 
so that's exactly what I did. <laughs> and uh, when you uh, when you pull up this paper, you can you can just scroll straight down to table two. Uh, I will note free full text, so if you want to read this, you absolutely can. Um, so yeah, just scroll down to table two uh, and and look at the strength of the associations between these various traits and mating success, which which is basically just like. Uh, uh, how many sexual partners have you had slash have you had sexual partners? And then there's a separate table for uh, reproductive success, like basically have you had kids? And um, yeah, so for mating success, it is true that body masculinity, which was a, a composite measure of strength and muscularity, uh, what did have the strongest association with mating success. Well, there you go. Uh, and, and so... Just based on that little, well, not snippet, like basically the whole article that I just read you, just kind of think to yourself, like, based on how that article was worded, how strong of an association do you think there was between body masculinity and mating success? You know, probably at least a moderate correlation, maybe even a strong correlation. But no, no, dear listener, uh, we're talking about an R value of 0. 0.113. Uh, and so you may be asking, what does that mean? How do I interpret that? So you can square an R value and get uh, what is very logically called an R squared value um, or coefficient of determination, which basically tells you how much shared variance there is between uh, two measurements. Sometimes, uh, sometimes that will be phrased as how much does variation in one trait uh, or, or one measure explain variation in another measure. So the R squared value we're looking at here is 0.017. So basically like 1.7% of the variance in, in uh, mating success is explained by body masculinity. Uh, and you, I hope you're not thinking, how much is 1.8%? Because it's not much. Yeah, uh, yeah. For, for context here, like if you were going to, pretend that you had a model that perfectly predicted an outcome you would intuitively need the r squared of the entire model together to be 100 percent. you yeah. have to predict 100 percent of the variance in the outcome so yeah if, if you are predicting less than two percent of the variance in the outcome uh that reflects the strength of re the relationship and the confidence level you have if you say oh wow well it if I manipulate that variable, you know, what kind of an impact will that have on the outcome? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we we were <laughs> we were talking about this before we started recording. It, sometimes in the medical literature, um, you'll see a, a metric called NNT or number needed to treat. So basically, like if if you're testing a new treatment compared to one that's already well established, and the new treatment tends to work better, NNT is basically just like how many people on average would you need to give the new treatment to before on average one of them would have meaningfully better outcomes than were observed with the comparator treatment? Um, so, you, you know, like it, it, it kind of helps like contextualize things. Like if one thing does seem to be better, it shouldn't necessarily, you shouldn't necessarily expect it to have like way better outcomes for every patient being treated. Like, you still there's still scale involved like you need to treat a fair number of people before um you know the the differences kind of become apparent uh so we we were kind of joking that like maybe we need a metric for research like this 
that's like nnf like number needed to number needed to fuck like you know like if you have uh a hundred people with high body masculinity and a hundred people with low body masculinity like how many more people have the have the folks with high body masculinity taken to bed like maybe one or two in total like that th that's kind of the magnitude we're talking about here for like what in our in our squared value of of one one point seven percent means um so yeah all of which is to say this is uh, a tremendous example of something we talk about from time to time where if you have enough data going into an analysis uh it's very easy to find things that are statistically significant, but statistical significance and actual practical relevance are two very different things. Um, so, you know, something that with in a meta with 177,000 subjects is predictive of a, of a particular outcome. Uh, you know, if, if the strength of that association is as weak as what we're observing here, then like, the the actual practical relevance of that outcome uh, in your life very well could be and probably would be effectively nothing. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Next thing I wanted to touch on is just that uh, ju just the level of confirmation bias I've seen from <laughs> from people sharing this around. Like uh, folks folks who have a vested interest in trying to convince you to get as big and strong as possible, you know, to buy their coaching, consume their content, whatever, are sharing this to say like, look, if you if you follow me on Instagram, you're gonna get laid way more. Uh, and the results don't support that. And then on the other side, like the the incel type individuals that I've seen sharing this, it's just like, yeah, this this confirms everything we've been saying, like the black pill, fully scientifically validated it's over for us we have low facial masculinity low body masculinity this major meta-analysis confirms that no woman will ever want to sleep with us so like it, it's over boyos and like once again no it it doesn't fucking say that uh and so like yeah th this is uh you know it's it, it's a study that i think if you interpret it well uh basically means that like these things maybe there's some some degree of predictive value in a large enough population but like the practical relevance to any discrete individual is is virtually none um but man i i still see people taking such big swings that like whatever their worldview is around the value of body masculinity this study confirms it uh which is very fun um and let's see, the other thing I wanted to touch on is, like I mentioned before, the, the concept of science by press release. Um, like if, if, so like I mentioned, I've, I've not seen people sharing this actual study around. I think that's partially because like, eh, like science is, is hard to read, a lot of numbers, whatever, uh, a lot of words as well. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a lot easier reading articles or press releases than it is uh, original literature. Um but also, like, this article, it's, like, the scientific study itself wouldn't be particularly shareable by any of the people who I see sharing it. Because if you're sharing this study and your followers actually see the data, if they have taken a basic statistics class, they could look at it and be like, oh, yeah, this, none of this shit is predictive. Like, what is this person on about? Um, 
but yeah, like there are a lot of the, a lot of the bad scientific interpretations, uh, that I see being shared around. Oftentimes it's from a generally decent study. And then just the articles written about the study, like kind of suck, um, or, or just like overhype it. And then the articles are what get shared. And so the perception of what the study says by the people who have only read the articles about the study doesn't actually match particularly well what the study actually says. Uh, and, and I think this is a it, very it sounds good like example you're, of that. You're referring to literally everything that's ever been said about resveratrol. Yes. yes. Also that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's most of what I wanted to say about this study. Uh I I wouldn't be surprised if you're listening to this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see either the real clear science article uh, pop up on, on your timeline or just some other article about this study pop up. Uh, and if you do, just remember R.133, R squared, uh, 1.7, 1.8%. Like that's, that's the takeaway from this study. Um, so yeah, so just just be informed uh, if if you come across this bit of information. Um, the one thing I will note, like a kind of technical sciencey note, which to give the authors of the actual study credit, they mention this as well. Um, for their meta, they assumed a linear relationship between these traits, like basically that uh, you know higher body masculinity would be predictive of greater mating success with you know like like ba basically across the spectrum like if you go from very low to low low to medium medium to high high to very high uh that each increase in those increments would improve mating success um which, which tends to be a pretty default assumption correct with a yeah, lot yeah. of research questions if, if you don't have specific reason in theory to question the linearity the most common default assumption is going to be a linear kind of relationship yeah yeah, yeah. um so that that was an assumption in this meta-analysis, but one of the things the authors noted, and this is a very appropriate technical note, is that if you did have a nonlinear relationship, there could actually be a strong relationship that is just a weak linear relationship. And so like a, a great example of that would be if you had a perfect parabolic relationship and you tried to fit a linear trend line to it, the R value would be zero because... You know, it's it's a well-defined relationship that is very poorly explained by a linear trend line. Um, Parabolic being like a, an upside-down U, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, that that could be the case where, you know, it, it very well could be if they did a nonlinear analysis, they might find that, like, moderate uh, body masculinity was maybe more associated with mating success and then with similar drop-offs in mating success with very high body masculinity and very low body masculinity. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying that uh, if they're using linear modeling, that is a possibility that can't be ruled out. Um, but that also doesn't lend itself particularly well to the take on this study that I see fitness people going with, where it's just like, yeah, you need to get as strong and, and jacked as possible to in, maximize your odds of mating success like that. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know if there is a nonlinear relationship here, just saying like, if there were, you, you could still have like an actual relationship that just uh, wouldn't be picked up by, by a linear trend line. Um, 
damn, that's a weak note to close on, but whatever. Well, yeah, that's, but, that's, but that's all I have to say about this. It, it is a weak note. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue with that. But it is. That's, that, that's why I'm the co-host. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it is uh, kind of representative of the fact that like when you are presenting evidence uh, in a nuanced manner, unfortunately, it doesn't lend itself to the uh, to the big finish. You know, where you say like, oh, I'm I'm gonna really hit the high note here and walk off. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it science is nuanced and so like it's it's very atypical that you get the opportunity to write that big big splashy headline that is fully representative of a study finding. Usually there's some more details and you say here's what it tells us, here's what it doesn't necessarily tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you you pick it up from there. But yeah, so the 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 biggest takeaway here is uh one for the fellas uh like just do you if you if you feel insecure like oh man like uh one one of the other things to note um like i i already mentioned this but i i really focused most of this discussion on on the body masculinity bit cuz that was the part that they uh th- that the article really really harped on um but yeah like if if you're a short king out there and you see this article being shared around and you're like oh man it also said that that height uh, was uh, a predictor of of mating success, where where taller people have it better. Uh, that was another statistically significant relationship with an even lower R value. That was an R of point oh five seven. So, I mean, that would be an R squared value of like half a percent, or or like point point three percent. So once again, like if, if you're a short king and you're like, oh no, like the it's it's never gonna work out for me. The, Height height was not predictive of mating success for all intents and purposes. Uh, if you're like, oh no, I'm uh, self conscious about the fact that my ring finger is longer than my pointer, or uh, my pointer finger is longer than my ring finger, and that means I have low T, and that means no woman will ever love me. One, if that's a thought that's gone through your head, you consume too much incel content. Stop it. Like any anytime you see someone bring up digit ratios, never listen to them again. Um. Uh. Yeah. Or, or if you're like, oh no, I don't have a strong jawline. Also, don't fucking worry about it. Not predictive. Uh. Yeah. Just like, just like, chill out. Be you. Be a cool person. Treat people well. And uh. Yeah. Stuff should work out. Good advice. All right. So I've got a quick segment I want to do on high intensity interval training. Uh, I'm considering it a coach's corner because I'm not going to do a super thorough dive in the literature, but. This is another instance of me kind of seeing things on social media that is kind of wrapped in this evidence-based label. And I I saw, you know, someone make this claim and then a lot of people who purport to be very evidence-based sharing this claim. And I kind of wanted to clear uh, or kind of set the record state, uh, set the record straight here. So the claim I saw, somebody like kind of made a post. Also. Uh, welcome back, ladies. We're, oh, we're, yeah. we're glad for you to rejoin us yeah. uh, after skipping that last segment. Welcome back. Yeah. Uh, so the claim that I saw was, it was all about high-intensity interval training, which I will call HIT. And uh, the whole idea was like, listen, if you're doing HIT, if you're doing true high-intensity interval training, like you should not be able to do a work interval that's longer than like 30 seconds. Like if you, if you can do this for 45 seconds or a minute, like bad news, you're not doing hit. And like, if you think that you're, you're, you know, 
group exercise class or your boot camp class is doing hit like you're kidding yourself and also you're a joke so like the whole idea was like you know only very few of us are tough enough to actually do interval training we all puke when we're done with it and if you're not puking or dreading you know your workout it's not actually high intensity interval training and so i saw people sharing it and commenting saying yeah you tell them good stuff and the reason that it, <laughs> it rubbed me the wrong way it was like this was largely kind of the vibe to me was to discourage people who are engaging in some of these other forms of higher intensity exercise that doesn't fit a very specific paradigm of interval training. You know, so like calling out like a group exercise class or a boot camp class, that's usually people who are like beginner or intermediate exercisers, not always, but often. And so they're, they're trying to engage in other forms of exercise and enjoying it and feeling good about it until they open up their phone and they see everybody just shitting on them for, for entertainment. I don't like the way that it makes high-intensity interval training seem in, inaccessible to a, a large portion of the population. That was my first concern. My second concern was it's not true. It's, it's wrong. It's false. It's fake news. It's any combination or permutation of words that mean, hey, that's not a true statement. Mm -hmm. So like what really bothers me is saying I'm going to dunk on people in the name of evidence-based fitness. By the way, I've never engaged with this evidence. I've never opened up one paper about high-intensity interval training. I have no idea what's going on in that research. Uh, so yeah, it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way because, man, would you believe that one of the most common high-intensity interval training interventions that you will ever find in the literature involves a four-minute work bout. So it's, it's four minutes of exercise at a high intensity, followed by usually about three minutes of kind of the rest interval or the lower intensity interval. So, Have you ever considered that maybe the people in research who defined what high-intensity interval training means actually don't know what high intensity inter interval training is well correct that that is kind of the underlying premise of this type of post is like i am going to set a definition for this that is fully contradictory to all of the scientific evidence that has determined what this intervention is and what it does yeah but also it happens to be evidence-based yeah so figure out how to make that work for me mm -hmm. uh, but yeah so basically it was just a, a really annoying post to me because it discouraged people from engaging in these forms of exercise that might by, that might be quite helpful to them. And again, it was using evidence-based fitness as a label to dunk on people while fully contradicting and misunderstanding the totality of evidence. So if you're interested in high-intensity interval training, like there have been so many protocols out there. I'm looking at a table from a review paper, a review paper that I'm going to link in the show notes. Um, but you could do, you know, 10 work intervals that are one minute long, eight that are two minute long, seven that are three minutes long, four that are four minutes long, uh, 30 second work intervals. I mean, you, you will find a huge range of work inter interval durations and a huge uh, variation in the, uh, the kind of ratio between work interval and rest interval. But generally speaking, if you look at the literature, you can call something high intensity interval training usually... If you're getting above 85% of your, you know, predicted maximal heart rate or measured maximum maximal heart rate, 
Uh, and some, some will even define that threshold as low as 80. Like, I mean, we are not talking about completely exhaustive exercise bouts here. We are talking about getting your heart rate up to 80, 85% of max heart rate, sustaining it there for anywhere from 15 seconds to four minutes uh, based on the literature uh, and, and kind of repeatedly doing that. So I, I sincerely think that the publication of the Tabata study is one of the most harmful things that has occurred in scientific history. That's th that's an exaggeration. I'm being hyperbolic and not because it's a bad study, but just like that, that I think has become the default mental model for yeah. people like what appropriate intensity is for like high intensity interval stuff and like yeah. the whole purpose of that paper was just like what if we took people who are already really highly trained and put them on like put them through a way higher intensity protocol than has been used previously um but yeah like that i i think that's like the mental model that people work with when it when it's like uh kind of defining training intensity for high intensity interval training but like that that paper is is an outlier in terms of the types of intensity they used. Yeah, and another common way to do it, um, people saw some of these modified Wingate approaches, which is fits the definition of sprint interval training rather than high-intensity interval training. You can consider sprint interval training to basically be something of a subset or, or kind of a, a subtype of high-intensity interval training. And if you're doing sprint interval training, that is a maximal exhaustive bout in the vast majority of cases, and those do tend to be pretty short and have pretty uh, pretty large ratios of rest interval to uh, to work interval. So, for example, this got big in the natural bodybuilding world. I'm going to sprint until I puke for like 30 seconds on a bike, and then I'm going to rest for like two minutes or three minutes or four minutes and try to work up the courage to do to do another and basically people would do a few of those sprints and say this is how we define interval training and anything else is fake it's it's just not an evidence-based uh, claim and it very directly contradicts the vast majority of evidence that we have related to high intensity interval training and i was going to do a longer segment where i talk a little bit about the pros and cons of interval training and how to incorporate it into a concurrent program for someone who's lifting and doing interval training. But it literally looks like the world is ending outside. Uh, this weather is disastrous. So I'm not sure how much longer we're going to have power. Um, also, uh, we're, we're getting pretty close on time here. So I'm going to save the longer hit segment for next episode. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, I just don't have faith in any of our equipment continuing to work for more than a couple minutes here. Um, this is actually really, it, it's a shame. I, I was looking at a map on, on like a meteorology website mm -hmm. and Tornado Alley is just like shifting east. <laughs> and so like, yeah. I, I used to like, I used to find it very comforting that I moved far enough east from Ohio that I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to see a lot of tornadoes. Yeah. And it seems like, it seems like we're getting more and more of those. And uh, yeah, the, the meteorology patterns would suggest that Tornado Alley is just consistently creeping further and further east. We're not squarely in it yet, but yeah, there's uh, there's some nasty stuff going on. Yeah, there. like I I don't I don't know how much of this is coming through the mics because I think the the pickup field is is calibrated pretty well, but it's it's loud out there. the The wind is is deafening. Uh, it's currently four fifteen p.m. Uh, you know, in, in the late spring in North Carolina should be very bright. 
it looks like the sun went down about 45 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. um, we we might be facing the end of days. So who knows? This this, this episode, might, if someone uploads it, it might be our letter from beyond the grave. So, yeah. uh, I also, I don't wish, know if I mentioned this. Wish, wish us the best. I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the podcast, but recently a tree like kind of fell on my house. Yeah. Uh, and so, man, every time the wind blows, I get like a little knot in my stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I I would I wouldn't mind knowing what's going on back at the house right now. And almost sure. as catastrophically, the last time it got windy, it blew over several of Lindsay's potato plants. So oh there's my God. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of casualties for this <laughs> this sort of weather event. Yeah, dude, it 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 snapped a full-grown, extremely healthy pine tree in Ooh. my yard and it it yeah, it was very close to doing a tremendous amount of damage, but geometry helped me out a little bit. But all right, so let, anyway, let's, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah, we're gonna wrap it up. Next episode, I'm gonna talk in a little more detail. You know, I already talked about hit has a broad definition. It should be very accessible to a lot of different people. It's even used in cardiac rehab settings and different clinical populations in the literature. But again, to know that you have to interact with the literature. Uh, So make sure your evidence-based fitness professionals every now and then check in on what we might consider evidence. Uh, I, I, that sounds like a really stringent set of characteristics that I'm demanding, but that's kind of part of the definition. I, I think that's a bar most people should be able to clear. Yeah. All right. To play us out, what do you got, Greg? Uh, how about how about you do yours? Because I'll I'll have more uh, real world uh, experience with mine next time we record. Okay, so you're gonna push it to next yeah, episode. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you know we often do these media recommendations to play us out, and and I've kind of uh, assumed that I just exist completely separated from media and entertainment, but I did more thinking about it and that's not true. Uh, So I don't watch a lot of television or movies. I really don't watch much at all, to be frank, but I do interact with a lot of music uh, and I listen to podcasts every now and then. So I have decided I'm also going to give media recommendations. They just won't be television or movies. So I like music because I can listen to it while I'm doing things, music while driving, music while working out, music while uh, doing work sometimes. So I want to start giving some pot, uh, some music and podcast recommendations. And my first one, of course, has to be Radiohead. It's my favorite band ever by a wide margin. Also, Jeff Nippard's favorite band, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Interesting. So interesting correlation there. I He's pretty strong. So, you know, muscular people, perhaps if you listen to the music they like, I'm speaking about Jeff here, not me, <laughs> but Jeff, Jeff is a freak and he likes Radiohead. So that's good. Um, so Radiohead, if you're not familiar, uh, they've been doing an album every two to five years since 1993. Uh, so they have nine studio albums uh, dating all the way back to 93. When I hear like a TV recommendation and someone says, great news, there's 15 seasons that are all 20 episodes long. I say, absolutely not. I, I don't want anything to do with that because it with a show, you want to work your way through its entirety. It's almost more feasible to deal with a show that has a less complete archive of, of episodes. But with music, you want it to be a huge kind of deep pool of music so that you can continue to explore different sounds and different albums and things like that. So I have a completely inverse relationship with music where I love hearing about a new band and I say, oh my God, they've got, you know, six, seven, eight albums. Like, that's great. So, uh, I have, I don't have a favorite Radiohead album, but you can organize them into tiers based on how accessible they are because some of Radiohead's albums are extremely experimental 
And if you dive right into those, it might be a bit difficult to pick them up, but easy access. If you're like, hey, I'd like to check out this band and see what they're all about. The Benz and Hail to the Thief are very accessible to a general listening audience. The next step up, you'll see albums like OK Computer, In Rainbows, The King of Limbs, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Those are more in like the moderate range. If you want to do a deep dive, you can listen to Kid A and Amnesiac. Those are their most experimental albums. And then finally, you can listen to Pablo Honey. That's their first album. And if you listen to all the others and then that, you'd say, absolutely not. This cannot be the same band. I refuse to believe it. So I wouldn't start with Pablo Honey because... It's my least favorite album of theirs by far. It's their least favorite album of theirs. They kind of refuse to play it uh, when they when they play shows. Um, and no one's really asking for it anyway. Um, but yeah, so Pablo Honey, I would say to the end, just almost as like a museum exhibit of like, holy crap, how did we get from from there to all the rest of their their albums? But each album is its own thing. And they even have a lot of side projects you can get into. Uh, their lead singer, Tom York, has had a ton of side projects Almost every band member has has done some uh, pretty high profile um, solo work, and then Johnny Greenwood, the guitarist, has done some really popular film scores. So he did "There Will Be Blood," "Phantom Thread," "You Were Never Really Here," "Spencer," "The Power of the Dog," and many more. And th those were like pretty big movies. That so you've probably heard music from members of Radiohead simply through viewing the films that I've never seen. Um, and and the nice thing about Radiohead, I've, I've already mentioned this huge. You could go through their studio albums, uh, their uh, film scores, their their solo projects, their side projects. But some of my favorite Radiohead songs are actually B-sides or unreleased tracks that never made it onto an album. So like I've been digging into their their entire library of music for 15 years mm -hmm. and I still find new songs and I say, I think this might be one of my favorites, you know? So nice. if you're looking for a band that, that has like a huge archive of, you know, a huge library of songs that you can really dig into with a lot of different sounds from album to album, I couldn't recommend Radiohead highly enough and I'll be giving some more recommendations in the future. Sounds good. All right. So uh, we better shut this thing down before we lose power. Uh, but this is a normal length of an episode anyway. So we did well. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening and we will be back in one week. I hope with another episode. Thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.